I'm Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are breaking down directing. If you'd like to suggest a new topic, send us a compliment, ask us a question, or otherwise get in touch, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at BreakingOutPod or via email BreakingOutOfBreakingInPod at gmail.com. And if you want deeper dives into everything we cover on this podcast, subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash BreakingOutPod. For just $3 a month, you'll get bonus content like templates, curated learnings, and custom infographics. For $5 a month, you'll get a holographic logo sticker, and for $10 a month you'll get that the sticker and a shout out at the end of every episode because you are one of our vips so i feel like we should before we even like jump into it contextualize that we are recording this in february but i don't think you guys are hearing us until like may yeah yeah may 6th (laughs) it is may 6th hello from the past everyone Okay, so directing. Yeah. It's a, it's a big, big subject. <laughs> Christina, when did you realize that you liked directing? Because I, I think both of us have talked previously on this podcast about how, like, we both very much consider ourselves writers first um, and primarily mm-hmm. as writers. But, yeah, when was, when was directing added to your oeuvre? Uh, so I should actually say when I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor because I didn't know what a director was. I knew that there was, like, writers and then there were people on screen (laughs) I think you know I'm talking very very young Uh, but I was always writing and I loved movies in general and then when I was 11 I was in a play um, in the musical version of Annie and I was just like an orphan and I really hated singing and the the teacher who was the director like forced me to sing and she kept making people do things that they didn't want to do just for like the sh- the overall show and her vision. And I realized when I was sort of being forced to, to sing when I didn't want to, that I did not want to act. And I in fact wanted to direct, but not because I wanted to be like bossy the way that I felt she was, but because I felt like I could do it better than her. And so <laughs> How old are you? I was what 11. Age? Wow. I love that. Um, but I didn't actually realize that I want like love directing until I would say uh, probably I made this short called SKA, which stands for Serial Killers Anonymous, and uh, <laughs> it was before Summit. It was the short, like the very first, last short I made before I made Summit, and everything else I had made before that I was really just like figuring it out. I I didn't yet know how to talk to actors, and I on do-over which we talked about in first projects I had this one actor who was like really just horrible because he kept going big with his performance like basically shouting it and just like being very over the top and he was a theater actor and I kept trying to give him notes to kind of bring it down and then like he would take everything I said very personally and then got very angry and stormed off so I had to recast him (laughs) and so I was like maybe I don't like directing Uh, But after kind of going through like a few shorts with a few different actors and like getting feedback and seeing what was working and finding a kind of groove, I made SKA and it was like a very collaborative film where the performances were very heightened because it was a satire. It was sort of a spoof of like a self-help group, but it was for serial killers who were trying not to, to kill people. And the actors were like very into collaborating with me on who their characters were and like what kind of 
killers they were and you know what like drove them to want to stop and that was just such a fun thing and then like seeing their performances come to life on screen and at that point I had really like learned so much about camera work and how to like tell a visual story that I was very much in control of that visual as opposed to like my DP just kind of doing their thing and me being like okay and so it was really with that sure. short that I was like, oh, I love directing and I'm definitely a director. Yeah, it's very, you can tell the difference between actors who want to act because they're interested in the craft of it and actors who want to act for the validation. Yeah. And they are two different kinds of actors. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Uh, my appreciation for directing, I think, came on a lot slower um, but it also aligned with understanding what the hell a director even was. Mm-hmm. Um, cause like even as early or as late in my quote unquote career as, you know, making brains for the first time, I genuinely didn't understand what a director did and how it was different from a producer and certainly how it was different from a director of photography. Like I understood that a director was a person who was vaguely in charge, Mm. but when you're on an indie film set and you know, all of the lines are very blurry um, for lack of a better cultural reference, like it's hard to tell if you're not familiar with all the terminology, like where the lines are supposed to be. Yeah. Um, so for a long time, like I was just like, the director's the one who knows about filmmaking and I'm the one who's also here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great. Um, but over the course of Brain Season 1, watching my friend Andrew Williams, who directed that show, or most of the episodes of that show, I really got an appreciation for it wasn't just the person in charge, it was also the person really guiding things. Mm-hmm. Like I think the moment directing as a concept clicked for me was early on in the Brains pilot the original script of Brains has a lot more like ums and uhs like literally written into the script for my character to say because it was like you know she was making all of these outrageous claims and was like you know very you know single-mindedly going after this boy but I think I as the writer was like well no one's like this I I should like cage it and you know oh um maybe if you want to go to dinner with me you know like Mm -hmm. it was she was a lot less sure of herself in the script phase but my director uh during one of the takes was like hey let's just try one take where you don't say any ums and uhs and you just go for it mm-hmm. and um I was like I mean I guess I'll try that but that's not what the script says you know I was very like script obsessed at the time mm-hmm. and I did it and it felt so right and it completely changed the way that I saw the character and her interactions with other characters and I realized how important just like a small suggestion like that could be be mm-hmm. and um from then on I was like really carefully watching Andrew for all the choices he would make on visual storytelling and on like small little character notes because it was never he's a very good director and you know I was very lucky to have his personhood be the experience I had at first and I just like I would just very closely pay attention because I was like I think I want to do that instead of the thing I'm doing I'll keep acting because it's all we've got but like I got my eye on the prize. Um, And so the first thing I ever directed was an episode of Brains, which my character was not in until the very Mm -hmm. end. So it sort of made sense so that I wouldn't have to kind of split focus. And it was like so fun. It was so fun to get to be in that seat and to get to like have people look to me for choices. And Mm -hmm. I I got to have total control over my script and the (laughs) the boys that were acting for me. And yeah, it was just very fun. So yeah, it was a, it was a slow burn. And since then I really am not interested in acting unless I get to be like a bombastic villain in somebody else's script. Shout out to anyone who needs a bombastic villain. (laughs) 
So would you say, like, other than Sam and Pat moving forward, you're just not going to be acting in your stuff? Probably, yeah. I, I, I mean, it'll depend, obviously, on, like, the thing, but I write things now to direct, not mm-hmm. to be in. I'm really trying to consciously, like, not write me characters, mm-hmm. but write, you know, me adjacent characters. And I've gotten really specific in, like, action statements of, like, directing choices I want to make. And it's like, well, I'm probably going to have to take this out before I send it to anybody because it's basically just director's notes. But I want to be the one to execute this. Mm-hmm. And I know that I don't have the capacity to act and direct at the same time. And frankly, I don't believe that anyone does. Yeah. Not in a way that I think is sustainable. <laughs> I agree. But. I mean, when you ask actors who starred in what they directed, they always say that they rely so heavily on their AD. And then I'm like, right. Or their well, DP then, or, you know, a co-director or right. somebody else there. But then it's like, if you're asking for that person to really like judge your performance and give you notes and, and kind of be an overseer of your performance, then that's directing and they should get like a co-directing title. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, so the first thing you directed was the it wasn't SK. It was, it was do over. The, yeah. Do over. Right. Which we talked a lot about in first projects. I don't want to kind of rehash stuff I said there, but I I learned so much making that largely because it was so ambitious, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. after that, like made a bunch of shorts that were, you know, one location and just two actors and really focused on performance and like getting better at talking to actors, giving direction. So for instance, like with Do Over, Isa, who's the, who is the lead actress in Do Over, she was wonderful. And, you know, we talked a little bit about like the themes in the project and what, you know, what's going through her head during this time in that the film is set in, but we didn't do any of the stuff that I do now, which is like talking about who this character was before the film started, like what led them here, just to kind of give them sort of like a bio, which is something I do when it's like really important to talk about like what set the stakes of where they are now, like in About a Donkey, which was written by Kelsey, but I went through it with Kelsey and like we kind of agreed upon, you know, this marriage that's being explored at the beginning of the film because it's a marriage, they're in their 50s and they're they're unhappy. And the mother is definitely struggling with addiction and she's struggling with depression and there's a whole bunch of stuff. And so like, I really wanted to give Catherine, the actress, like a full kind of bio of where, how this couple met, like what their life was like, where things started to fall off and sort of where she is psychologically at the start. Even though it's a comedy, it's like setting this the stage, right? That's stuff that I do now that I didn't do with Do-Over. And in hindsight, like, I just made a lot of mistakes. Like, I think that Isa's great, and so she kind of saved it. But a lot of the men that I cast, you know, there's, like, a creepy guy in the beginning, and then there's another guy at a gas station, and then another guy. Um, that's a thing that you'll see in my films a lot, like, like creepy men along the way. But uh, <laughs> there's <laughs> then there's, like, the, there's a killer in her house at the end. But I didn't really do anything with any of them to, like, talk to them about who are their characters outside of just, like, this creepiness that I needed them to bring to that one scene. And that's something that I really tried to then like hone in on after that film was like, okay, let me just focus on character. Let me focus on actors and working with them and the different ways of of speaking to them and, and collaborating with them. And this was, Do Over was before I ever took a directing class too. And so, yeah, it was like, it was just a big learning experience overall. That's cool. Yeah, I've, I don't think I've ever taken a director's class either. Cause I, again, I didn't go to film school. And then by right. the time I was in, 
grad school it was writing and producing you know it was about like get the thing made it was never I yeah I, I have no idea what one would learn in a director's I, class but I could probably get a lot from it I'm sure the one I took so I can't remember her name and I feel like an asshole for not remembering her name but I took one directing class with a woman professor at school and she gave me a couple of things one was she said that 80% of directing is casting and like that really resonated with me and I agree with that I would agree with that <laughs> so so that's like that's why I control my casting and even if I were at the point where I could afford a casting director like I would really need to be very hands-on in that process and maybe I'll elaborate on on that more later on but she said that and she also was very good at getting us to talk about a scene like every every class would be like talk to me about a scene that really resonated with you and like what you took away from it and we would sort of dissect scenes and that was really helpful I remember the first day of class I brought up the scene in Alien which is one of my favorite movies where the guy who works in like the below deck gets attacked by the alien but you don't see any of it all you see is the alien tail basically like drop down from the ceiling behind him and then the rest of the scene plays out with audio and the cat that is watching it happen the shot is just on a cat watching and and of course that's what you brought up (laughs) right of course it is but like that was just such a I just love that scene and that choice and for so many reasons just from like it being interesting it obviously saving you on budget like you don't have to show this whole (laughs) attack and it just like builds more trepidation for what this monster actually looks like and is capable of and so she was like one of the first I would say people that got me really thinking about in a frame like what's in the frame what's in the sound all of the little choices that is directing even beyond performance and how all of those things create a feeling in in the viewer Um, But I will say that the one thing that I found somewhat limiting is that so and this isn't this isn't unique to her this is like a thing about directing is that they tell you that you're not supposed to speak to actors and emotions you're only supposed to speak to them in like intentions and so like something that she would have us do an exercise over and over is we would get a scene and then some people in the cat class would have to act out the scene and which I will say like I hated doing but it also I think is good for directors to put yourself in that vulnerable position and then like having to take direction and what that feels like because then you sort of being on the other side know how to like do that you know dance with someone uh, in a way that's going to 100%. respect them and stuff so so anyway I hated doing that but it was always an exercise where some people were acting and then someone would be the director and have to give notes and she would never let you give a note that was anything but talking to them about the intentions behind what they're saying or what the context is. So can you give me an example of what an emotional direction would be? Because I, I don't think I understand the difference. <laughs> it would be like about their emotions. So if it's a scene that's about grief, you don't want to say like I need it needed to be sadder because that's like what does that mean and it's directing them with a result like an end result in mind as opposed to uh, a psychological state which is like what I which is what I prefer over intentions I would say so like instead of talking to them about give it to me sadder you would maybe talk to them about like what what is the scene that they're coming off of and what are the psychological stakes of this moment like have they just found out 
and you remind them of the context of the moment and like in my this is me now being a director I would talk about like what I'm not getting as opposed sure. to saying like give me more sadness like that's not right 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 but in her in her way of doing it was always like talking about what does the character want in this moment and what are the intentions behind the moment or the scene or the line and I agree with that but I think it can also be limiting because sometimes then you're like speaking in this flowery language when you could just be really practical mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah I can and sometimes that. you do need to just say to someone like that was great but faster you know what I mean so like I I thought it, I found it to be a helpful class and it definitely got me out of just like speaking in results the result that I would want from an actor and to really think about it sure. as like they are this person they've created like a a psychological profile of this person and how they would react to things. So let me just like set the stage for them as opposed to being like, give me this. Uh, But I also found it limiting. So all that to say, very long winded story (laughs) is to say that I think that directing classes can be really helpful, but also a lot of it is just like common sense in a way, just like it's about, it's like the same way that if you're a writer, you're probably thinking about all of these things when you're writing, like who are these characters? Why would they make these decisions? What is is creating the, the subtext here or the context here that would make them react this way? And I think that that's what directing is really, is just like giving that or collaborating on that with the actor. Yeah, that's true. I think I will say the, the struggle that I think a lot of people and I've seen a lot of people have with directing is the act of communicating that because like when we were writing you have space and time to like sit and think you know I've sat still for 15 minutes trying to think of one word before Mm -hmm. getting it perfect and like moving on with my script so I I I can see how maybe for some people like that would be helpful um I I've always found it pretty easy to communicate like at the more that I know about the thing I'm trying to do, the mm-hmm. easier the communication becomes because um, I, what I also consider myself lucky with is that the first director I ever worked with was very much like, this is a collaboration. I am not like your puppet master. And then the second director I ever worked with, not as an actor, just as a producer, was like the opposite. You are my puppets. You say, you emphasize the words I want you to emphasize or we do it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I think that was a really good instruction for me on like, okay, So if I hire someone, I should just trust them or it's going to cause resentment that'll (laughs) trickle over the entire cast. Good to know, because I am very much a control freak. But I, I learned very quickly that that is, if you're not getting the performance you want, it's not that like you need to exert more control. It's that mm-hmm. you haven't been clear enough in the control you already do have to, yeah. you know, mutually come to a position. Like I, I really quickly had to learn like to divorce myself from the way that I would say lines out loud to myself as I was writing mm-hmm. and the way people were going to deliver it. Cause there's, there's literally no way that they're going to deliver it the same way. Even if you line read to them, even yeah. if you parrot the line to them yeah. and it'll just feel false and it's much better to let them get it out. The important thing is that it's true mm-hmm. not that it sounds like the way you intended it to sound like as yeah. long as the scene plays true as long as you believe what they're saying and how they're interacting in that space then that's the goal and I, I think a lot of especially writer directors have a mm-hmm. hard time separating those things and I, I had an issue in the beginning but luckily I'd seen enough good and bad directors by the time I directed my first like real thing ace and anxious mm-hmm. that it was not quite as prominent in my own directing. Yeah, I mean, I would say also, that's why I think I agree that 80% of directing is casting because part of it is like finding someone who feels right 
and who does like get the cadence and the timing and the pacing that you're going for so that even if it's not exactly how you heard it when you were writing it they just sort of get it and it feels right to them too and so totally. it comes out it comes out like naturally you know or saying a slight adjustment like just asking them to quick quicken up the pace very slightly will like get them there you know exactly that's why i would have a very hard time with pursuing like name actors and then just like taking whoever will say yes which is sort of what you're advised to do in this industry is Mm -hmm. like you want to get your film out there you want to get it as big as possible go after name actors and take whoever will like show up for a day and just do it as much as like I understand the reach that that would get me I just couldn't I just like that's so hard you know (laughs) because I've Mm -hmm. been in situations where the actor just does not feel like that person and either I've settled or it's a situation where like I haven't directed for hire really which we'll, I know we're going to talk about in a bit but I have done stuff where I'm like collaborating slightly so like I'm co-directing or something like that and so maybe an actor comes along with the project and I didn't get to choose them and so it's like not quite there and for me like I think some directors like to say how they like pull performances out of people and and I think right exactly and I think so much of that is just like manipulation and like you could do it without doing that (laughs) like they probably would Mm -hmm. give you that like Alfred Hitchcock and the birds like yeah my that God. kind of nonsense. Right, exactly. So, but for me, it's like, I'm just a guide. Like, I'm I'm there to create an environment where you can, like, be your best and do your best work and to just, like, keep you on track along the way. But, like, I'm not able to turn someone into something, right? And, like, right. that's why I just have a hard time with the idea of not being able to cast my own projects completely. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel that. So do you have a sense of, like, how do you describe your directing to other people? Like, what would you consider are, like, the, the tent poles of the Christina Rea style of directing? And also, I'm just curious about your process. Do you mean on set or in general? Let's start with the art <laughs> and then go back to the brass tacks of practical stuff. Like, what do you think the, if somebody watches something that you have directed what are the things that you think are really indicative of your style so I would say pacing like building intention because I do a lot of genre work obviously like pacing is a huge part of that but it also is in comedy and for me like if I were to say my style as a whole in terms of working with me I think I'm a very collaborative director so like I have a very clear vision but I'm very collaborative in who I bring on like knowing that they're gonna bring something special and unique to it there are definitely some like trademarks of mine that you would probably find yeah what, what do you what do you think if like if I watched two films that were technically the same film but one was not directed by you and one was like what do you think are things that would like cue me to oh that's a Christina Rea directed thing right there yeah so I would say that I tend to lead with sort of character first I'm very focused on people and on relationships so a big thing for me is one when I was really studying visual storytelling something that I would do is watch films muted and Mm. and like see what the frame was telling me and I think if you did that to some of my films, particularly my features where there's like an evolution as opposed to, you know, a single like three minute something, right? Um, You would see that I like to tell you 
because I do a lot of ensemble pieces, especially my features, I like to tell you the relationship between these people through the, the way I frame them. So for instance, in Summit, which is about five friends going on a ski trip, and then by the end, they've all like turned on each other. In the beginning, they're framed, they share frames as much as possible. They're like constantly in a group or they're in threes and twos. There's never like barriers between them. They're always sort of shoulder to shoulder, very like tight knit. And as the film progresses, they start to get separated more and more. So you would see like either there's a physical barrier put between them in a frame, like, you know, a chair or a table or something, or they start to have singles completely Uh, and then I will break up certain people like these two are on the same side so they'll have a two shot but this person is by themselves so they're only gonna get singles and similarly with about a donkey at the beginning of the film the parents who are who are unhappily married at the beginning of the film they never share a frame together there's only one wide shot and in that wide shot there's like a nightstand separating them and their chairs are sort of on opposite sides of the frame and by the end, they're only in two shots because it is like a happy movie where they where things work out, um, unlike Summit. But <laughs> for me, I think if you watch my longer stuff, and even with Kelsey, our web series, I like to take you on like a journey of choices that tell a story in and of itself. So there's the framing thing with Kelsey because we would do, um, we did a lot of flashbacks. It was like, a, it was non-linear. And so we had lenses that that like that only would happen in flashback scenes versus the, the, um, the sort of timeline that you're watching. Also with Kelsey, because she goes from being like unhappy and feeling like she needs to rely on her friends a lot, we only used lenses that were wider, were 50 or wider, I think, was the case. We went from like a 25 to a 50, just in that range. And then as the series went on and she became more grounded and she became more like self-sufficient and secure and like it became a more intimate series and she started, you know, dating Joanne, who is love interest of the show, then we were only on I think we stuck stuck with a 50 in the middle, but then at some point we were 75 or tighter. And so, and if we were going to do a wide shot, we were only going to use a 50. And so like that was an evolution in the way that it looked to sort of bring you into like this more intimate space. And also with Summit, like the color tone changed. We went from a, a more kind of like vibrant color to a very, very desaturated look like I was really pulling the color out of their lives especially because like in the film there they go like three days without food and they're like really just gross looking because they haven't showered they're stuck in this house and so you don't see it like as you're watching it because it's very slow and so it's very it's like not something that's drastic but if you were to compare the first scene to the last scene you'd be like holy shit like this looks very different that's really cool yeah I also I mean Summit was a little bit excessive in that because I also color-coded all the characters to represent different things so like Sean, who's like the hot-headed character in the film, is only wearing red, like red is his color. And Will, who's envious of Sean because he has a, a crush on Jesse, who's Sean's girlfriend, he wears green throughout the film. That's actually, I mean, that's fun, especially for like a like a slashery horror sort of a thing. Totally. Um, and since it's in the snow, so like I imagine having some colorful contrast sure. was always... I mean, I'm really like, I'm still happy with that choice, but it is like, 
because their jackets are the color and then also like whatever they're wearing under is the color and so it's just like so that when they take their jackets off when they're inside the house they still have that color on and it's like a little excessive but I still dig it because again it feels like the frame more with color when you're just like surrounded by white and I also Mm -hmm. pulled back so like they became darker more muted versions of those colors by the end of the film but they were still their colors um, and it also was like a hint to who the killer is, who's like this cold, cold-hearted blue in the film. So if you haven't seen it, you can watch it and you'll know now. But um, That's cool. That's very fun, though. Yeah. And so I would say like that playfulness is something you will find in my work a lot. And like refer- I'm very kind of referency in the way that I do things. So like the gaze, the shooting style changes three times because there's technically three different like films within the film. There's a sort of 80s movie happening on the TV screen that the main character is watching, but and that's like a sort of scream kind of movie that then turns out to be a movie set and then we're in the real movie. And so I spoke to my DP and I also spoke to my composer about kind of reference films. And so it was like the first one is sort of like when a stranger calls. So like 70s, 80s, that's sort of the framing we were going for. And then when we were in the movie that they're shooting in the film, we're in Scream, like the camera movement, the way that I move in that. And also um, the music is very Scream. And then I I used It Follows as a reference for for the rest of the film. Yeah, that makes sense. So it, it's, that's the, like, I don't know, if you're a really big fan of horror movies, you would catch it. Like I did that with Night In as well, which is an earlier film. Um, it's very scream. It's intentionally very scream. So, so you will see like an appreciation for the movies that I love and like made me want to make movies. But I always kind of bring my own flavor to it. Cool. Very cool. What about you? What's your like style and what what makes your work read you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I don't think I've quite gotten as solidified of a directing style as you do, just because I haven't done it quite as much, and because I tend to direct the things that I write Mm -hmm. um, and my writing has such a voice that it's, it's hard to look away. But I do think that we're similar in the relationship and framing sort of aspect. Like I'm also a big fan of being intentional about who can be seen in each other's frames. Mm -hmm. Sometimes like Ace and Anxious, I only got to be so um, inventive with my directing choices because of just timing. And because there were a lot of problems that plagued that set, like my lead actress had to leave by 2 PM every day. So, for usually like at least half of the coverage of conversations that she was in she wasn't even literally there so I couldn't like dirty the frame um and even though I really wanted to so like Mm. there was just like a functional reason why some of the framing is not what I would have liked uh and then also there uh, an actor didn't show up and we had to recast very quickly with the people we had we had to kind of restructure some people and so some of the choices that we were planning on making we just like Physically couldn't because we needed to move on with the day. Um, but I will say for like, uh, for the the most recent things I've directed, so buy-in, my only like true horror thriller kind of thing, something that I really enjoyed working on in that film in particular was playing with power mm-hmm. and power structures because everyone in that film technically, well, two of the characters knew each other, but the two primary characters did not. They were strangers. And so depending on who I wanted you to think 
had the power at the time and who in the scene thought that they had the power, um, they would take up physically more of both their own frame and the other person's. So when we were filming the person who um, was at least at first perceived to be the victim in the scene, he, in his like medium coverage, he only had like a third of the frame. <laughs> the other two thirds were like the back of the other actor's head or like shoulder. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he didn't even have his own space. Like that's how claustrophobic it was. And we also shot him from above. So he not only we were not only looking down on him, but he also had so little of his own frame to like take up because, you know, he was just this small mousy, you know, victim. Mm -hmm. But then as the scene progressed, not only did we move a little bit further away from the other actor's shoulder, so he got to take up more space in his own frame, but we also started moving the camera down. And on the flip side, uh, he started taking up more of the other guy's frame finally. And the other guy who we started on a really low angle of, which is not hard because this guy is like six foot six, um, we also started to film him from a little bit higher up. So like the, the, over the course of the film, who has the most space literally in their own frames changed as we understood how the power dynamics were playing out. And that was like a really fun thing to kind of map with my Mm -hmm. DP and with my actors. Um, And I I think it it went pretty well, but then on the less horror side of things, I've also been directing a lot of like rom-com-y stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually my, the only two main director for hire gigs that I've ever gotten better with you, uh, seven episode Halloween rom-com and then Rosalie, a six episode queer kind of coming of age, like late, late in the game coming of age story. Both of them have romance plots and are comedies. And so in those, I try to make sure that like when we're on our like main love interest couple, they're always in each other's frames until there's some kind of like strife. So like mm-hmm. if there's a fight, you know, we'll we'll move away. But like when we're filming stuff with them, anyone else, I would probably just give their own frame. I wouldn't even bother dirtying it so we could let the other actor have a like chance to breathe. But right. when it's the two love interests, I gotta see them together. I wanna see, you know, the corner of one of their face reacting to a cute thing that their partner has said, things like that. Like I want to watch the nonverbals play mm-hmm. out. Um, and so for that reason, I also like longer takes and I like tighter, like two shots. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to play as much of the scene as I can in an intimate shot where we can really see both actors sort of play off one another, almost like theater. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I like watching the natural reactions that people have when they're just fully immersed in character and in conversation. And in some cases, I I don't watch things with the sound off, but I sometimes like, Whenever a char- two characters are on screen, I look at the one that isn't talking mostly during mm-hmm. the scene because I think that's where you get the most interesting moments. Yeah, I would say I also really like to see reactions. I do a lot of ensemble pieces, so like that's part of why my favorite thing is the edit sometimes is like sure. you, you have so many options of where you can cut to and so often... I like to just like cut to a reaction for a punchline, maybe not even on the mm-hmm. person. But I, I don't I wouldn't say that I have long takes. I mean, about a donkey is sort of an outlier in terms of my work because we were trying to shoot a hundred and ten page script in twelve ten hour days. So like it was we had to <laughs> a lot of it was like we're gonna make choices that serve the story but also serve our production needs. And so it was yeah. like the whole thing is natural light. We committed to shooting it on one lens. We were like, we're never going to swap a lens. 
and we're gonna do sticks which like normally I'm not so into just being on sticks the whole time but that was the next thing I was gonna mention is yeah I don't like being on sticks if if at all possible I like remaining fluid I like when the DP has to shift a little bit because the character's shifting because I think mm-hmm. that also adds some tension but no yeah. please continue <laughs> no but I was gonna say that's a, that's one of the films where I do have longer takes where it's just like living in the sort of kind of awkwardness or like silence because it is a film where there's a lot of punchiness to the dialogue but it's also there's like a lot of sadness that's under the surface and sort of getting to a newer place but but then also a lot of cuteness because there's like also it's a rom-com as well within the film for the older daughter and so we did a lot of two shots like long two shots in a way that I probably wouldn't choose to normally I like to have options in post I like to have options for reaction shots is sort of what I'm getting at but in, I think it works in About a Donkey, but I feel like in some ways it is a reflection of like my ingenuity as a director and my ability to kind of like create relationships through framing and stuff. But it's probably not an example of my usual pacing or like the usual kind of choices I would make. Sure. But I do like long takes when we're shooting because I like people to do full run throughs because I think like Same. allowing them to get into the groove is is better than just asking them to do this little snippet. Yeah, I the way that I direct is similar in that like I, especially when, you know, there's kind of a lot going on, I don't like calling cut if I don't have to. Um, like I, you know, especially because I'm usually editing as well. So I don't care that there are long takes. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm working with another editor, sometimes, I'm like, okay, fine, I'll call cut. But I find that calling cut can a lot of times um, suck the energy out of a sequence. So I I really, when I'm working with a new DP especially, I'm always like, when I say reset, that doesn't mean cut camera. That means we're going to go back to one and try it again because I want to keep the energy that we've got and just sort of go back into it. Um, And also, yeah, I, I also agree that I like letting them kind of work up to the momentum, especially I like starting on the wide shot or the two mm-hmm. shot and then going in for a close-up, which I think is pretty pretty standard. But for me, what I like is that it lets them work out the natural pacing ahead of time. So then they're less frustrated when we get into the one shots. And I'm like, you can't interrupt each other. You have to leave clean air in the dialogue so I can edit. And they're always going to be frustrated, especially actors that aren't as as, um, comfortable with film acting. Mm -hmm. But at least they know they've executed a version of the scene that is the actual pacing or like close enough to the Mm -hmm. actual pacing um, so that I can be like, we've got that. I promise (laughs) you, I'm not going to screw you over, but I'm begging you to stop jumping on her line, (laughs) you know, or whatever it ends up being. I like to start with a wide two just to sort of give everyone a view of what it's all going to look like like so not just for the actors but also and the dp even though we've probably done a blocking rehearsal but also for sound like for them to see where people are going to be moving in the scene or or just generally for everyone to get on board with the pacing and for me as a director it's also where i see strengths and weaknesses so that i can make decisions on who's like the order of coverage because then i can say like sure Sometimes it's what I know, having worked with a lot of the same actors over and over, I know that this person is really strong right out of the gate, but then they lose steam versus this person needs to ramp up, you know? But if I've never worked with them before, it's a good kind of like barometer, you know, for me to say like, okay, that person, maybe we will do them last so that I can get a sense of what they're giving me as I get everyone else's coverage. And then I know exactly what notes to give them when I get to them, you know? That's generally why I find wides helpful because mostly like I never use a wide maybe for like the beginning or end of a scene but generally I'm rarely ever cutting to a wide yeah I don't cut to wides very often but that's why I and sometimes I don't even like do a wide I just do a two shot because Mm -hmm. I will cut back to a two shot occasionally 
Um, especially yeah. if it's actors that I've worked with before and I have a sense that there's going to be a continuity of um, performance. Um, I've found that when I'm working with not as familiar actors, I can't do that as much just because like there's too much variance in between what they're doing in close-ups versus what they're doing in the wide. Mm-hmm. But so it, it very much depends on the cast for me. What do you do before set? Like what do you have a process of working with actors before actually getting to oh, the day? Oh, that was what I was going to I was going to ask you about rehearsals. So perfect. Let's start with this. Um, yeah, so I obviously it depends on like the circumstances of set. Like, you know, my ideal set is we do a big group table read where we mm-hmm. have all the actors there and all like the key crew members. So production design, um, AD, DP, and, you know, a handful of producers, whoever needs to be there. And um, if everyone else wants to come, that's that they're welcome as well. But those mm-hmm. are sort of the main people I want. And then just do a full table read with everybody and like just as a centering point for people. And then at the end, we all kind of just talk through person by person, like how they're feeling about their character, you know, what their um, motivations are, what things they're confused by, challenges they see, and just sort of like work it out at the table of like, Mm -hmm. this is the story we're all telling, just kind of get on a general same page. Um, And then uh, the day of, we'll do like some read through rehearsals while people are setting up camera and I'll just like work with the actors on like, hey, let's just do a quick rehearsal. Let's, you know, make sure your lines are good um, and we'll, we'll kind of talk through anything and we'll just sort of like all get on the same page just within that scene of, okay, this is what we're doing. If there's a blocking moment, then we'll do a blocking rehearsal just with actors Mm -hmm. to make sure that they're comfortable with the movements and it feels natural for them. Then we'll bring in camera for a rehearsal so that the camera person can feel out where they need to be, especially if there's a lot of movement. And then we'll just go in for a take. Uh, and then in terms of like my script, I uh, I like to split my script into two parts. So on the left side of my script are um, acting notes. So anything that I in I want to have in my head on the day, like this, you know, I really want them to hit this word or this line or something like that. And then on the right side will be like more technical notes. So like, Mm -hmm. I want the camera to be low here or things like that. And usually these are things that I've talked about with the, you know, various crew members before, but I, I like to keep my script straight. So, you know, at least a handful of weeks before I go into production, I like to sit down with a hard copy of my script and just go through it and make my like directing notes and acting notes on their respective sides so that I have everything kind of in place. And then when we're doing the scene, I can go back through and be like, oh, right, I need I need to make sure that the camera is in this position at this moment. And I, you know, even in the scene, if I don't have time to take notes, I've kind of preset some notes that I want to make sure I hit on. Yeah, so I would say I'm similar. I don't like too much rehearsing because I feel like it can start to become wooden. And especially if they have to bring something really emotional, it can be like too rehearsed, really. So I... I always do a table read. I'm a big fan of table reads. And I usually will like, I invite crew, but it's not mandatory except for, you know, DPs really. And like anyone else that's really, um, like my AD is my editor. So he's always there as well. And we always invite crew and I always make it like a dinner of some kind. So it's also Mm -hmm. like, we're going to hang out after and, and eat dinner. And we'll do a read through. We'll talk about it as a group. I usually will then maybe schedule like a call with to talk one on one with anyone who I felt like wasn't quite grasping who the character is or something like that. But that's not always the case. Like I, the last thing I directed was other than films about starring my cats. Other than Feline <laughs> Fables, the last thing I directed was Game Brunch, my my short. 
that has six characters in it. And I think it was only like two of them I actually set up a call with because three I had worked with a whole bunch and was like, I know what I'm gonna get, like you get it and you don't need to have this like one-on-one, but I might do that. And then we might set up a blocking rehearsal if blocking is a big deal, like with the gaze, because there's like a scene where she has to run through the apartment and then there's a scene where we have all one take uh, walk mm-hmm. down a block like we did a blocking rehearsal for those things and then even like enough my, my film enough there's a, quite a bit of action in that because it's a, a home invasion and one of the characters has to get hit in the head with the butt of a gun and so like we had to do a lot of blocking rehearsing for that but generally I don't usually have it be a separate day it might be like the morning of the shoot we've built in time for that and yeah and so like it's really just where we do you know run-throughs the day of like okay let's run through it for for camera and then for me like the first take the wide shot is sort of like the rehearsal where then I'm like okay I can see what needs adjusting and then give notes and, and go from there especially because with my projects it's like time is money and so I'm Mm. paying people like very little for the day of, but I don't really have the money to pay them to like show up for rehearsals and stuff like that. And I don't want to take up too much of their time. So I have to really like maximize the time that we have on set as much as possible. Yeah, I I also don't generally tend to do separate day rehearsals. I we like that's I think more of just a scheduling game of you and your DP and your AD if you're lucky enough to have one being really clear about like what days you're going to need more time for. So Mm -hmm. like the rehearsal for harder shots is baked into the schedule that day. Um, so like there's a scene in Better With You and it's the main fight between the two love interests and we decided to do that as an all one fluid take and it was a really complex scene on a lot of levels like you know we we just there was a lot going on and um, both of the actors were like it was it's an intense scene for them and they're really dating <laughs> so mm-hmm. having this kind of like emotionally fraught thing that they had to do perfect from start to finish was very emotionally vulnerable for them. Um, So like they had talked to me beforehand about like, hey, we need to do some rehearsals. And we also would prefer to not do them in front of anyone, but like you and the DP, like, do you think it's going to be too much of a big deal to like ask everyone else to just go hang out in another part of the house for this night? And luckily the location we were at was pretty big. So we could, we could give them that separation. But so yeah, for that one, we made sure that that was like the second thing of the day, we had wrapped as many other of the actors as we possibly could up until that scene. And then we gave them a lot of space to just sort of work through it together. And like, as the kind of actors were doing almost their own separate rehearsal together, me and the DP were kind of off to the side, like observing their little like mm-hmm. song and dance and then kind of figuring out on our own how we were going to cover it because we wanted the camera moves to be like basically following the actors mm-hmm. um, and we wanted them to feel like they had the autonomy. So we were more reacting to what they were doing and just giving them space to experiment. Yeah. And I love that scene and I'm, I'm really proud of it. And I, I think that especially when you're working with actors you really trust, letting them kind of figure it out themselves, especially when it's a couple of them in a scene and you're just like, go ham. Like, let's see what happens with you guys. And then kind of reacting to that because everything is sort of a well-oiled machine. That's, Mm -hmm. those are the magic directing moments. Totally. I mean, that's why I keep going back to this, but really like directing actors is casting because Mm I want to cast someone who feels like the character, who gets the character and is then going to make choices that feel like who that person is. And so a lot of the time, like my DP and I would never do like a blocking rehearsal without the actors there because the actors would guide that. It's like, 
if they have to go grab a cup from the cabinet, like you show me how they'll go do that. Like I'm not going to tell you Mm -hmm. how to walk over there and do that. And and so it is a lot of just like meeting them where they're at. And And I will say my DP, Peter, who's really great. He's my DP for most of my stuff. He's a big fan of like, I'm going to follow the actors, like tell, let them do what they want. He's never the kind of DP that's like, that doesn't work for my frame. He's like, if that's where they want to be, then that's like, I'm going to make that work for the camera. And, and I yeah, do love my that. My DP Brandon's like that as well. He And he also, like me, really likes being on, not on sticks. Mm-hmm. Like he loves have, being able to move around and like get up in there. And I, I love that. He's in med school now, so I don't think he'll ever be my DP again, oh. which is very sad. But he was, we, by the end, like he and I worked together on like, I think four separate projects and by the end like I could sort of just grunt at him and he would know exactly what I needed mm-hmm. like that's something that I find as a director I really need help with because like I my my brain sometimes doesn't process language in a way that makes sense to other human beings like mm-hmm. I know exactly what I need but it'll come out as like I need it to be more uh, nah, nah, you know <laughs> and like by the end Brandon was very Brandon Smalls my DP on uh, Brain Season 2 Ace and Anxious and Buy-In um, he would be like oh I know exactly what we're talking <laughs> or like I'll just like move my head a little bit and he'll be like oh I see what you need okay cool 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 <laughs> which that you can't you know you can't plan for that sort of a thing but I, I really appreciated it so yeah I miss that I, I just that that's one of the most fun relationships that I ever have is like between me and whoever my DP is and sort of just like doing my best to explain the technical thing I need them to do, even though I do not have the vocabulary or the, my own skill set to really back it up. Mm-hmm. But I know the vibe that I need. Um, and the best DPs are the ones who can like pick up on the vibe and execute it in a way that like actually looks good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, I, I would say at least 10% of directing is having a DP relationship that is really, really like give and take. For you sure, know, yeah. That they're not just waiting for you to tell them exactly where to place camera, but they're also not taking so much control that it's just like, no, that doesn't look good. You know, like it's it's all about collaboration, like you said. Like on, on every yeah. level, a director, I don't think, is really making a lot of choices. They are just letting, like seeing what choices other people are already making mm-hmm. and deciding which ones work best together and making sure that yeah. they're set as a place where people feel comfortable experimenting with one another and that there's trust and safety. And if something goes weird, it's fine. We're doing a weird (laughs) thing together. (laughs) Right. It's like it's your new you're you're overseeing and it's like your job as the director is to always have the big picture in mind and just Mm -hmm. making sure that the puzzle pieces like they can change and morph a little. But as long as they all fit together in the end, that's really what matters. And so it's like you're you make sure that everything that's a choice that's made makes sense with that but it doesn't have to be exactly what you like come in expecting and I personally love seeing what like an actor gives me or what my DP like what they think would be really funny here like when I was making uh, Game Branches which was my last film I was like I want to change the f- the shooting style up in some way whenever Ricardo says something that seems threatening but like is in hindsight maybe isn't but like something to sort of create this like funny note of this is maybe like an off kilter kind of comment (laughs) and it was my dp's idea to do like a slow push in so it's all like a handheld film nothing's on sticks nothing's really steady but it's not like shaky it's just sort of like it's you know smooth it's casual it's it's like very rom-commy and then ricardo will say this like comment and then all of a sudden the camera does this slow push in 
And <laughs> it's really funny. I think it's really funny. I know. I, I can't believe that no one is like not very many people have seen it yet. Because I feel like I read the script like almost two years ago. Yeah. And then I saw it like a year ago. And I'm like, I, Christina, you need to put it out. I, I know. Need, <laughs> I need to talk well, we about it. We shot it people. in November 2019. And I really wanted to be on the festival circuit because I really want to watch it with an audience, you know, and it's just. Yeah, it's that so... would be a fun one to watch with an audience. Yeah. So it's I don't know if I'm really going to get to do that, but. In any case, that was like a choice that my DP suggested and I just loved it and it like added so much to it, you know. Again, it's like casting, hiring, choosing people who are going to bring what like this special thing to the project and and then seeing what they give you and then you can like, you know, make adjustments or talk about what you're not getting. But ultimately, it's like it's collaborative. It's it's everyone has a piece of ownership to it. The other thing I wanted to say about before set is though I'm not a big fan of rehearsal, I am a big fan of like togetherness. So like I <laughs> if I'm if I have a couple on screen, I make them go on a date together. Like I will pay for them to go on a date together. <laughs> Interesting. Because I want them to feel like familiar and to really get to know each other and to like build some sort of bond. On the other hand, if they're, they meet in the film and don't start dating until later. I don't want them to go on a date. Maybe like mid-production I would ask them to. But generally I try and like have the actors create their own relationships that like I don't exist in. And so for instance, I with About a Donkey, there's a couple in the film, the middle daughter and her husband who's played by Ricardo, who's like I was going to say, isn't that also Ricardo? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but... Annie and Paul, the characters, I was like, go on a date. You met in college, but that's all I'm going to tell you. Come up with your, like, meet cute. And they ended up coming back and telling me how they met. And they had, like, a really cute story. And they had gotten to know each other. And you can kind of, like, feel it on set. Then they have this, like, playfulness where there's, like, some or something real there. With About a Donkey, we also, we did, like, a family brunch where we had the whole family come. And I made pancakes and... And uh, Kelsey and I were there, Kelsey the writer, and then the cast, and we just like talked about this family and like what are the family dynamics, but it was also just for all of them to like bond. And with Summit, even because all the characters are supposed to be friends for, you know, from college leading up to the film, part of it was like from like money purposes with crowdfunding, I wanted to cast the actors really early. So I cast them in a year in advance before we actually shot oh, this wow. film. Yeah, so like I would do movie nights and invite them over and, you know, have just like group hangs where they all really did become friends for that like period of time leading up to the movie. And I, and I think you feel it, especially because the two the two characters that are supposed to have a lot of like they don't trust each other and they don't like each other. The actors actually didn't. And I, I don't know if it was like a method thing on their part, but... <laughs> It like just so happened that they had this weird dis like dislike of each other. Not that they were not so much that they didn't want to work together, but just that you can like tell that the others were friends and these two were not. And then like I think that read in in the movie. I also did a little bit of like method directing on set in that I halfway through the shoot because we shot the film in order for the most part. It was like a lot in order, and by the end they're all supposed to be like at each other's throats, and so. For the second half of the shoot, I made them all share a bedroom because we were all on location. <laughs> and so while most people had like three people in a room, they were five in a room together. And uh, I don't know if that added anything, but they were up for it. They were like totally like, you know, and then one of them was like, OK, I need to get the hell out of here and like get my own hotel room by the, the end, which she did. But that was because she was just so like tired of sharing a bedroom with so many people. 
but we, I talked about Summit a lot in in first project. So for anyone who is a longtime listener, you know it was an intense shoot. Um, but the last thing I like to say is sometimes, not always, but sometimes I like to give people reference films so that we're kind of like speaking the same tonal language. So for instance, with uh, Game Brunch, I asked everyone to watch Clue and Shaun of the Dead. And then Ricardo in particular, I was like, watch Clue and really watch Tim Curry's performance and watch Young Frankenstein and really like any Gene Wilder performance. And he's like, he's such a great actor and he's so, Ricardo I'm speaking of, though Gene Wilder as well, but um, Ricardo is such a great actor and he's so fun because he's just like game to play. And this was a performance where you could really like play with the delivery so much. And so I was kind of like, you know, watch the way both of those actors, Tim Curry and Gene Wilder, play with like volume and pacing even within one line you know they're just like so funny their comedic timing is so good and they're both movies that are like kind of funny but in like a sort of dark sci-fi situation or or like dark uh thriller situation and and so that was something that I like asked him to do and I think it, it he came in and like really had I could tell that he was like playing with with a lot of of the stuff that I asked him to play with and sort of observe from them without like copying which which is what I think you get from a good actor is like I wasn't asking him to imitate anyone but just to sort of observe their playfulness with a single line and like how you could deliver something so many different ways and so in like in lieu of rehearsing and not having a lot of time on set because on set like I really my notes are very concise very like they're supportive but they're direct and they're just really like short and sweet and if you're doing it well I probably like won't say anything other than great like great that was great let's move on or let's do another but um I try to keep it really really tight on set because we just don't have time and so I try to do as much ahead of time as possible and that isn't like telling you what to do but it's just sort of like giving you the the sort of tone that I'm going for and and like just making sure that you understand the character and I'm available for any questions really yeah I I so a couple of things that I, I was thinking of as you were saying all of that so the first thing is the I rarely have time to get people together before shot like shooting if we're not strictly doing a meeting all together mm-hmm. but um a year ago, a little over a year ago, um, we were shooting a kissing scene, the first kiss scene for Rosalie for the web series that I was hired to direct by a former student. And both of the actors were fairly, um, they neither of them have ever, had ever done a uh, on-screen kiss. So they'd never done like kissing on camera. And both of them were also pretty, uh, they hadn't done a lot of just private citizen kissing, as it were. So they were there was a lot of like uncomfortableness. So what we did mm. for that scene was we did everything up until that point because the kiss ends the episode. And then I was like, okay, everyone else get out of the bedroom. <laughs> and so then mm. I sat with them and I was like, I want both of you to like, all right, I want you to hold their like upper shoulders and just sort of like hold, like be in a space touching and just look at each other, make eye contact. It's going to feel weird, but I just want you to do it. I, I basically, I was trying to exercise the sort of general discomfort of being in someone's space who you're not mm-hmm. actually intimate with. And I had them mm-hmm. do that a couple of times. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to leave you guys in here. I just want you to talk, but I want you to like be like touching knees or something. Cause they were on like the edge of the bed. I was like, I want some part of your body to be touching 
don't make it weird, but like I want some part of your body to be touching and just just chat. We're going to go talk about lighting out here and I'll come check in with you guys in a little bit. And I don't know how that helped. The kiss is a very cute scene and they they, <laughs> they both did really lovely. But um, I really wanted to make sure that like you guys have the space to feel this out make sure you're comfortable. I also want you guys to be clear on like what either of you are comfortable with. Like is touching the face okay? Is touching like the side of your waist okay? Like I want you guys to work that out and I'm going to be here to capture whatever thing that you guys do. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, that was something that we kind of worked on. And that was also like, that set is a lot of sort of me being in like a teacher position because Mm -hmm. not only is the creator, my former student, um, although we're basically the same age, teaching grad school is weird, uh, but also just because everyone on that set is pretty amateur. They're, they're learning. They've grown so much Mm -hmm. since their first project, but like I very much in every capacity have to kind of take on a teaching position first and a directing position second, because first I just need to make sure, do you know what it means when I say rule of third, you know, or like, okay, so I think we need to change the lighting. I don't actually know <laughs> what we need to do, but let's work this out. So that's that's been an interesting sort of thing that I have to do. But then the other thing I was thinking of is like the two main directing notes I give people are not related to like necessarily character at all. The first one is slow down, mm. which I know is my own um, Achilles heel in acting and in just being a person I talk too fast mm-hmm. but like I've noticed because I work with a lot of comedy and comedic writing um, the performers tend to try and race through the line because they're worried about like landing the punchline but mm-hmm. when you're doing a piece that's not a hard joke like you're not doing a Colbert monologue you know like mm-hmm. you're a person having a conversation but I've noticed that a lot of actors tend to rush through lines that they want to be quippy because in their mind quippy means quick but like then it just sounds monotone Mm -hmm. and so a lot of my notes especially for directing comedy are like it's okay to slow down the words mean something you are saying something you're Mm -hmm. not making a joke you are saying something that happens to be funny I need you to slow down so you can feel all of that like find your levels find what you're trying to communicate I promise it'll be funny but you gotta actually say the words like they're separate things um yeah and then the other thing is to speak up specifically because I work with Colin Hinckley and actors so much <laughs> usually most of my notes are like all right so this was good slow down here Colin talk louder <laughs> <laughs> which is so funny because he's a theater actor but he's so quiet that's funny I find that because I do a lot of casting like I hold a lot of auditions unless it's like I'm I'm casting someone I've worked with before or I've written a role for them which was the cam- case with Game Brunch I find like what those things are in the in the room in the audition room and then sort of like know what notes to give them as we move forward but something that I really love is when actors tell me how they like to be communicated with and I try to meet them there and even if they don't tell me I find like the way that they're communicating with me about character is probably how they want to receive it and so I think part of directing is just like being in tune with what each actor is giving you so that you can sort of speak to them in their language. For instance, Catherine Wessling, who's so lovely, plays the mom in About a Donkey. When I first auditioned her, I was like, she's so funny, she's so sweet. Like, I think she's very likable, which was very important for this character who's, you know, very unlikable at the, seemingly at the beginning. And I was like, one of my, the, like, things that I had in the back of my head was that she's a theater actor and she has, like, a tendency to go very big. And, you know, film is more about subtlety, right? And when when I offered her the role um, and we started talking about character, one of the very first things she said to me is she's like, I know 
I want you to know that I know that I have a tendency to go big. And if there's ever a point where I'm doing a take and you think it's too big, just literally tell me that and I will tone it down. And I was like, I love you for saying that to me, <laughs> especially because like I've been in situations like when I was making do over where like actors just can't hear that they're like going too big. And, and I never would know how to phrase it. That's like in a way that's not going to damage their egos. Um, and it's rarely a note I've ever had to give since really, but just like I really like that when actors communicate what it is that they want or need because like I'm very into backstory I'm very into like being collaborative coming up with who these characters are but if that's not your thing like just tell me and that's fine too but I I think so many so much of the time people think like directing is imposing your vision onto people and that's just so not it in in my opinion yeah Yeah. i agree the worst director i've ever worked with as a as a producer thankfully not as an actor was someone who like he was the star he was the director he was the editor he was the dp um somebody else operated the camera when he physically couldn't but sometimes he would literally operate the camera himself if he wasn't on camera um he was the producer he was the ad like he was everything and literally everyone was his puppet like I came in in the second part of the thing we were shooting I'm trying to stay vague but if anyone has <laughs> knows my work history you're gonna be able to pretty quickly figure out who it is but I I came in later like they'd already shot a lot of stuff um and by the time I got there like some of the actors had already been with him before and I was talking to one of them and I noticed something on a scene I was like hey does that usually happen because he was just giving everyone line readings and they were like oh yeah the first the first uh you know couple of times that we shot this I tried to like come in like I had all this like motivation stuff and like I had this really cool idea who the character was and then I really quickly realized oh no I need to literally interpret what was on the script into my mouth so like if there's an italicized word that's the word I have to hit Mm -hmm. um and once I figured that out it got a lot easier and we had to do fewer takes (laughs) not as fun but like uh, you know I'm getting content for my reel and I was like oh god that is such a low bar um and it was just like watching that take place was so demoralizing and by the end I was not the only one who was demoralized and like the sort of iron-fisted approach to it made for a worse project because like Mm -hmm. I would hear some of the other actors like rehearsing together or like doing a little scene when with this person not in it and it was so funny and then they would get on camera and he would beat it out of them Mm. (laughs) it was so sad to watch and you could you watched especially like the newer actors who like hadn't been a part of the the project before coming into the scene excited and you would watch the different way that they walked away from it Mm -hmm. and also like all the crew who were you know consistently under-resourced but uh and like we really were just like mic stands mm-hmm. at a certain extent. <laughs> like we just, we held his fancy equipment for him. It was, it was awful. <laughs> and I was like, I never want to do this. I never want to be like this. I, I, <laughs> this is the exact model that I never, ever want to reach. And yeah, yeah I, it, it was just such a shame because there were so many talented people that worked on that, you know, and he managed to like collect so many people, all of whom were criminally underused. Three things I, want to say (laughs) (laughs) one um for me I think so much of being a good director is like stepping out of the way and allowing the actors to talk to each other and like find it together especially if it is like about their characters emotions with each other you know And the other thing I wanted to say was just a funny story, which I told when we were recording a previous episode, but we cut it out. 
but it was uh, when I was in college, I was script supervising for this film that was being directed by this older white guy who was a producer turned director. It was his first time directing. And he had spent so much money. Like I was getting paid so much. I think it was like two fifty a day to be a script supervisor. And wow. it's the only time I've ever been paid that for being on set. <laughs> um, but he had like rented this house in New Jersey and it was a big house with so many windows and they had black wrapped the entire house so that it would look like night. And they had this dolly that was going through the whole house. Like it was just so excessive. He obviously had money, but he had never like really paid attention to directing clearly and maybe had taken, he definitely read like a book or took one of the classes like what I referenced earlier where they talked to you about intentions and how you're only Mm -hmm. supposed to speak to them in intentions because every time that he would yell cut and go over to give them a note, he would just say to the actors, remember your intentions. Don't forget your intentions. And like, I don't know if we ever had a separate conversation with them about what their intentions were, but the fact that he would always just come over and say that like with nothing else, not even like, you know, that was great or faster. He'd just be like, okay, we're going to do it again. Remember your intentions. And the actors were just like, so do you want me to do it differently? Like, what is that supposed to mean? And I just mm-hmm. watched that for, for two days. It was a two-day shoot. And like for two days, I just watched him do that over and over. And it was a terrible film in general, like from the script and the fact that it, the woman was just like wearing this revealing nightgown the whole time for no apparent reason. Um, and so... It was just terrible, but that for me was like an early example of how not to direct because it was just absurd. And then the last thing I was going to say, I think also directing and not just for um, the actors, but for the crew as well, it's kind of like leading by example. And that to me is like, if you're shooting in a car and it's really hot and we can't have the AC on because the the sound will be a problem then I'm not going to be like in an air-conditioned car watching from a mon- with the monitor from in there you know or like mm-hmm. if it's really cold like I'm not going to be like wrapped up inside when you have to be out in the cold in the woods or whatever which was you know summit and one of the like a quick story there was in about a donkey one of the actors has to run across the lawn without her shoes on and it had just rained, so the lawn was wet, and sh- I could he- and like in my mind, I was like, okay, I don't want her to run across the lawn without her shoes on and step on a rock and like get hurt and also like fuck up my day because then we have to like deal with that and we lose our light and all of that. So I decided to take my shoes off and run across the lawn to make sure that if there were any rocks, I would step on them and get hurt myself. <laughs> but not her and simultaneously as I'm like in the process of starting to do this I hear her complaining to like one of the other actors about having to run through the wet grass barefoot and like she's not happy about doing it and and then she saw me doing that and I was already planning to do it because of the rock thing but she interpreted it as me being like you're right, like I'm gonna run with you so that you don't have to be the only one running through the grass wet. And she was like, oh my God, Christina, you're so great. Like, I love that you did that. <laughs> and like, and I was like, cool. Like, I, I mean, 
Yeah, like I was gonna, I was, I, I would, if I had heard you complaining and wasn't already planning to run through the grass to check for rocks, I probably would have taken my shoes off and run with you. But the fact that she interpreted it as that, she would tell, she kept telling people this story about how great it was that I did that. And after we got the shot, we both like soaked our feet in warm water together. And it was like a good bonding moment. But um, that's just to me, like seeing how much she appreciated that, it made me even more aware of like being on top of those kinds of things. Like when you're asking actors to do things that might be uncomfortable or it's something they wouldn't choose to do, A, make sure it like needs to happen because of the story, right? But also be willing to do it yourself maybe, you know? And like really kind of lead by example, which I think plays into as well like the stuff we talked about in Red Flags, like leading with mm-hmm. positivity and like making sure people feel heard and aren't, you know, Joss Whedon on set. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, yeah, for me, like what I want people to take away from my sets is not like, wow, her vision was so good. Like I mm-hmm. loved the shots we got. Like I'm not, I don't care. Like I care, but that's something that's so far abstracted from what we're actually doing on set that like I'm not interested in that. What I want is when people walk away and feel like it's a place they want to go back to, you know, and and I feel the same way. Like my approach to directing is very much like my approach to teaching, which is like I have a thing in, in mind that we're trying to accomplish and ideally everyone is roughly on the same page, but I'm not really concerned with the results so much as I am concerned with, does everybody feel like this is a space they can be weird in, you know, <laughs> especially when you're doing comedy or romantic things, it's like, it's always going to be weird to do it on camera. You know, it's mm-hmm. always going to feel dishonest to like smile really brightly into the camera, you know, like the, it acting is so weird. It's so weird. And I want to make sure that like I validate like, hey, I know this feels weird or I know it looks like you're not looking at them, but I'm telling you like it's true. Like I just want them to trust me. Like that's ultimately what I want from cast and crew alike is I want them to trust me and not just like, just trust me. I've got this, but I, I mean like really trust me. Like if I am telling them it looked great, I I need them to believe me. And if I have not provided a set where they feel like they can believe me about, you know, hey, we need to run that one more time. It was almost perfect, but we need to like shift camera slightly. Or if it's, we've got it, I promise you we've got it, we can move on. Like if I don't have that trust, then it doesn't matter how perfect the end result is. Like something has gone awry that goes deeper and I don't want to deal with that. You know, I want to make sure that we fix that right away. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I figure we could end because we're once again at our, our hour and a half mark. Yeah. Um, I figure we could end with like any final sort of worst directing behavior, red flags that either we've done or seen other people done just to make sure we're all on the same page about what not to do. Uh, and sure. then really quickly, maybe just go through like our um, our influences and, and favorite directors. Sure. So um, I feel like we've talked about most of the work directing, worst directing behaviors sort of already like line readings is a really big thing. Um, mm-hmm. There'll be a whole article about that in our bonus Substack content. Um, we've also talked about auteurism, you know, like the the iron fist of I am. It is my vision, and you're all just here to execute it for me, the special one. Yeah, doesn't exist. It's never existed, and no. people it that sucks. try to make it exist are usually the worst people ever. 
though. Mm-hmm. Yes, 100%. I also said that uh, something I wrote down was answering too many questions. I've seen a lot of, uh, again, especially writer directors get really bogged down in like being right. And so mm. having an answer to every single question that both specifically the actors ask, but also to an extent casting crew, like I, I think that's a mistake because mm. it inherently puts you in the position of like the, there's no autonomy on the, on the parts of your, especially mm-hmm. performers. They don't feel like they can make any choices unless they confirm it with you first. And mm. I, I think it makes them feel more detached from the performance. So, um, and I, this is also a teaching trick I have, which is sometimes a student will ask me a question and I'll say, well, what do you think? And I'm not I'm doing it in like, that, this yeah. is a lesson, you know, but it's like mm-hmm. a, I want you to try to answer this question because I'm personally interested in your thought process in the attempt to answer it because I still might answer your question if I feel like I need to, mm-hmm. but until I understand how you're coming into this, why you're asking me and what your, if I wasn't here, what conclusion you've come to, it's going to be hard for us to like move forward in a way that you have the like ownership over the answer to execute properly. Yeah, I agree with that. Because you're told so much that you have to sort of like make sure everything's aligning with the big picture. You feel like you Mm -hmm. have to answer, have all the answers always, and that you like look bad if you don't have an answer or if you don't answer a question and really it's more it's more strategic than that. It's like making sure that people feel like they have a sense of ownership And yeah, what do you think I think is the best way to answer something? Sometimes you do want to answer. Oh, totally. Sometimes it's like, yeah, we need to move that light, (laughs) you know, or like, oh, this is the, you know, it's, it's not like being the maddeningly, I don't know, what do you think person, but it's about finding those moments where they're looking for an easy way out, but you need them to do the harder introspective work because it will make what they're about to do better. Right. That's why I also think like, I have this friend who is a director, but he. I've been on a few sets with him and he like never really gives direction on the day of and I think it's because he's like nervous about talking to actors and one of the actors told me that she got a script from him that had every single line under it would it would say like what their um, intentions were so like what the intention behind the line was and what or their motivation or whatever and what the subtext was and she was like I felt like he had done my job for me and there wasn't any room for me yeah, to like that's weird. find on my own and I was like yeah that's very un- like very unusual and it feels like he's just like unsure of how to give direction or how to collaborate and so he's just trying to like make sure he gets what he thinks he wants but he's like taking mm-hmm. your agency from you and your craft from you really and so I think it's also like you can anticipate too many questions and preemptively answer them and end up sort of making people feel like well what's the point then you know but yeah that was because like as someone who loves to talk about backstory like I want you to tell me too like I want it to be a conversation and like let's find it together I'm not gonna like send you a full like history of this person and like go through the script and be like here's what they mean here and what they're feeling here and and like here's their family tree yes their grandfather died in 1954 right um and then the only other thing that i just had thought of is not validating good choices because and this is something that i've had to learn in many parts of my life over the course of my life is that i assume that if i don't Like if I'm put in a position where I need to critique something or make changes or whatever, if I don't say something, that means it was good. (laughs) And I just don't have to say anything. So, you know, assume that silence is compliance. If I'm silent on it, it means it was great um, or it was fine. But I've learned that that is not generally 
how people prefer to be communicated with when they're making themselves vulnerable. So um, something that I I have had to learn and, and like sometimes have to like make an active effort to do is not just jump right into like okay these are the three things that need to change about this scene in Mm -hmm. our next take but also have at least one or two moments where I'm like that was really good but like give a specific like I I don't want to just be the person who's like that was great so here's the things that need to be worked on like I want to be like I really liked your delivery of this line really great stuff I love the energy keep that in the next scene and then for changes like I I try to make sure that I have at least one concrete like validation and Mm -hmm. affirmation before I go into like notes. Otherwise it can feel like the only time I talk to them is to critique. And I don't think that that sets anybody up for success. And I I don't think that that makes people feel like safe. Yeah. Like I told that story in, in first episodes about Emma when we were shooting Summit and how like she was brilliant and I just assumed she knew she was brilliant. So I just like, exactly. <laughs> only gave notes to the people that needed work. And then she was like crying by the end of the day, telling me that she like didn't feel, you know, appreciated. And so mm-hmm. uh, since then, 100% what you just said, I really try to make sure that I'm I'm on top of letting people know that I, I am happy with what they're doing and, and appreciate it. And that totally. it isn't just like these are the adjustments to make, but also what is working. Yeah. And, and to be clear, I don't think that that's coddling. And I don't think like actors who request that specifically are being divas. Like I, I, I they're right. You know, yeah. like, you know, when, when people read my scripts, I like when they tell me what they like specifically. Mm-hmm. Like I don't yeah. need them to, you know, give a personal check of approval on every single line of dialogue that they like. But for God's sake, tell me what was good about it because, yeah. you know, it's a very vulnerable thing that we're all doing. So mm-hmm. you can toss a compliment here or there. It's not going to slow down your day that much. Yeah, This is a note for me specifically. Um, <laughs> influences. So just like, For people who want to watch stuff after this uh, that is not just ours, but work from directors that we admire, Christina, who who do you consider some of your influences? So uh, John Carpenter is a big one for me in terms of building tension and also sort of his use of like foreground and background. And if I were to recommend any one particular film, The Thing is one of my favorite movies ever. So I really recommend that. Um, And another one that we have in common is Edgar Wright, for sure. Mm -hmm. Like pacing, comedic timing, just like editing. Visual comedy is, is one of my big things with Edgar Wright. Yeah, I love the way that like every choice is intentional. Remember your intentions, Uh, but like for real, like every set piece is intentional. Every movement of a character feels like very both natural, but also like the perfect piece of a, of a puzzle. Like, I mean, baby driver, I have thoughts on, um, but like as a feat of directing, it was very impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you and I will have an off mic conversation about Baby Driver because <laughs> uh, I was so excited. And then, mm-hmm. mm. yep. but like on a on a craft level, it was an incredible feat. And it, and that and I think Scott Pilgrim in particular are two of my favorites of his, just because they're so colorful and there's so much going on, but it's so tightly put together. And I'm very curious what it's like to be on his set because mm-hmm. I I wonder how tightly executed of a film that it turns out to be looks on set. Like, I wonder mm-hmm. if the actors feel confined, you know? Right. I'm, I'm, I would be really curious to hear about what, it, what it's literally like on set because, like, the end result is beautiful, 
but I wonder if the set is all that fun to be on or if it very much feels like you're a gear in the machine. Right. It's interesting because he's someone who I always think is a good director and like I appreciate his directing choices. But as far as his movies that I actually love, they're written by Simon Pegg. So like there's (laughs) it's like (laughs) writing is king when it comes to like the story and, and really resonating. But like from a purely directing standpoint, his movies are always good. You know? Yeah, totally. Uh, and then I just wanted to to throw out um, Amy Sherman Palladino, who like she yeah. she directs like she writes, which I like both of. Mm-hmm. Content again, we Same. can have a longer conversation about, but like yes. she's somebody who really appreciates long takes and letting actors shine. And she also, I know from like reading interviews and and with other actors and like with her, I know she tends to be very word perfect in her directing, mm-hmm. which I'm not. I I'm fine mm-hmm. even as the writer of a lot of my pieces. I'm fine Same. when actors. Deep if it feels more natural mm-hmm. um as long as the the you know cadence remains in play as long as like the spirit of the line is still there i'm not gonna care if you drop the an you know what i mean yeah, same um, i mean if it's a joke <laughs> and like changing the word changes the joke then that's an exception right. but otherwise yeah totally or if like they drop a part of the line that logically sets up something and mm-hmm. so like that's not just like missing the cue line for the next actor but it's also like wait you didn't actually explain why you're mad <laughs> You know, like you drop the one really important thing. Like that, of course, I'll make a mention of. But yeah, I'm not going to be word perfect. But I really do like Amy Sherman Palladino's long takes. I think Mrs. Maisel in particular is really fun to watch because they have set pieces that that span the entire apartment. They're not just like a corner of a set, which really allows the camera to get to move around and follow actors around. And like it just it feels very alive. I like how alive her frames feel. Um, and then I also wanted to give a shout out to Yulin Kwong, who's uh, an indie director, but who's getting more and more notoriety, uh, in particular, her short film, I Ship It, and Angie and Zara are, are two of my favorites. I think she she's kind of Edgar Wrightian in that she's got a lot of like fun, bright colors and movements and like match cuts and things like that. Uh, but she also is just like she's very character driven as well. And she lets actors have their moment. And I really, mm-hmm. I really like the way that she she works. I actually interviewed her about directing on my other podcast, Forget the Box. So that was a really fun thing to get to do is talk to her about craft. Uh, and then I also just wanted to give a shout out to Kathy Yan because I rewatched um, Harley Quinn, um, Birds of Prey the other day. And Birds of Prey is so fucking fun to watch because she lets character, like she lets specifically female characters be kind of grotesque in a way that you rarely get to see on film. Um, and it just makes all of the choices more interesting. And then, of course, just the way that she directs act- action is so intense. Like Harley Quinn, Harley Quinn in the police station, that entire sequence, start to finish, is just so fun to watch on every level. I just want to say one little thing, um, not related to your recommendations, but uh, a quote that I really like that I recently saw by the director Mira Nair, who... If you don't know her, she directed Salam Bombay, Mississippi Masala, Monsoon Wedding, The Queen of Cutway. Uh, and she, I would say she's one of my favorite directors, even though like there's nothing in common with what we direct. <laughs> um, but she, a quote that I saw that I just really liked and I thought would be good for this episode, she said that directors need to have the heart of a poet but the skin of an elephant. And so they have to have they have to have like tenacity and to to have thick skin, but that they can't just have that. They also have to be able to be vulnerable and to have 
sort of the spirit of a dreamer who can transport the audience and like believe that they can transport the audience and I and I thought that that was a really lovely kind of summation of what it what it means to be a director and what you have the qualities you have to have to be a director a good director I love that that's a great that's a great one to go out on cool all right thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music Kaylee Brown for our podcast art Ezra Lee for editing this episode and to all of you for listening links to learn more about them are in our episode description and thank you to our booby vips who are ten dollar patrons on patreon shannon sprangler jules piggott rain bernal kelsey rauber jerry maravia norman steinberg and shana rose woolley if you would like a name shout out at the end of every episode please feel free to subscribe at patreon.com slash breaking out pod which this time will almost certainly have like our episode notes because there's truly so much that we didn't even get a chance to get to so definitely mm-hmm. keep asking us your directing questions I love talking about directing with Christina. I would love to do this again. Um, And also make sure to rate us five stars on your favorite podcast app if you haven't already. And uh, please remember that actually writing a review makes a big difference and we love reading them. So please keep sending those in. We really enjoy um, seeing what you have to say. All the validating things. Remember, you got to validate good choices. So validate our good (laughs) choice of making this podcast. Next episode, we will be covering distribution for shorts and web series. So if that is something that's interesting to you and you're wondering what the hell do I do with this thing I just made, now that I know all about directing from this episode, well, don't you worry, we've got you covered. So we'll uh, we'll see you next week. Nope, not next week. Whatever. Goodbye. <laughs>